Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. So we are casting vision as a church, and to do this, we're asking you to imagine our church in 10 years' time. And this has been called Future Present Thinking. When you paint a picture that is a desirable picture of the future, and then you live in that picture for a while, and then you gradually mark your steps back to the present. And this does two things. Number one, it helps to orient the leadership Uh, And it helps orient the leadership's decisions. Uh, But more importantly, it directs and it makes the most of all of your gifts and all of the gifts that God has given our church as we move towards this future picture. In my last summer of high school, a couple of friends and I went on an aimless road trip. And I mean that literally it was aimless on purpose. We hitched a pop-up trailer Uh, behind one of our cars, and we randomly picked a direction, and we drove. We just knew we had five days, and we just drove. Everything else was just undecided and undefined, and we would make it up as we went along, and it was great. And this is really great if you're a bunch of high schoolers with five days to burn, but it's not so great for a church. We need a sense of where we're going. Now, we will not pretend as a leadership to know the exact GPS coordinates of where we are going, uh, but we do think that God is giving us a direction, even more than a direction, specifically a city, if you will, to drive to. And this city has some broad themes about it that we believe will factor into the future of our church. And over the next few months, we want to share them with you. And, and I'll just speak honestly, over the next few months as we reintroduce in-person worship, Lord willing, and as we uh, pursue life together, it is going to feel like a church plant. Hope is going to feel like we are planting a church. We knew this at the beginning of the pandemic. Whatever happens on the other side will be much like when we planted originally. And so this is a timely time to sort of cast vision about what we think we are going to be about. And so over the next few months, we want to share these broad themes with you. Uh, First, we talked about vocation. We believe in the intersection of faith and work. And we believe that that intersection will play a huge role in the life of our church. And if you want to hear more about this, I would just encourage you uh, to listen to our first two sermons in our vision casting series. And I would also encourage you to take part in our book discussion that will be uh, launching here at the end of March. So if you haven't heard about this, Sign up for our newsletter. You can do that on our website in our connect section. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can get more information there. But the big idea is that we are, as a church, encouraging you to read this book called Every Good Endeavor. And it's about the intersection of our everyday work, whether it's paid or unpaid, and our faith. And uh, myself and Aaron Badenhop will be leading a guided discussion on this book. And you can see the reading plan. You can uh, 
see how to order the book. If you're having trouble uh, maybe ordering the book or finding the book at a library, we would happy to, we'd be happy to help you out in that way. But those are a couple ways that you can sort of plug in and hear what it is that we think God is calling us to do with regard to vocation. But this morning, I want to pivot to another theme. And that is what I will call holistic Christian maturity. Uh, There are three legs on the stool of Christian maturity. Our intellect, our emotions, and our habits. Our head, our heart, and our will. And I want you to guess which of these three legs is the strongest in our church. I want you to guess. Well, if you're like me, you guessed the mind. The mind. We value at our church the life of the mind. It's kind of our default setting. I mean, after all, our church has more degrees than a thermometer. Uh, We are partners with uh, the Thompson Institute, which celebrates and encourages Christians at the highest possible level of scholarship, which is amazing, quite frankly. But if that's our strength, that means we are likely weak on the other two legs of the stool. The heart and the will. Our heart and our habits. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to look at each, starting this morning with the heart, starting with emotions, the emotional life. What place do the emotions have in the Christian life? What is emotional maturity? And why is it so important to us as a church that we are including it in our vision casting season of life? Well, let me pray first before we dig into that question. Lord, would you speak through your word and by your spirit this morning for your servants here are listening. We are hungry for a good word. And so we pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, about 20 years ago, God called me into ministry. And part of the way he called me into ministry was through a crisis of faith. I encountered Jesus in a life-changing way about five years before that. And life with Jesus up to that point was relatively smooth. But then all of a sudden, it felt like I got T-boned by a giant truck called doubt. I had a lot of intellectual confusion and a lot of intellectual questions. And I aired these questions out with mentors and with friends. And nobody seemed to understand or even appreciate the depth of my concerns. Uh, But then suddenly I met someone who did. He was long dead, (laughs) but his books really helped me. And his name was Francis Schaeffer. Maybe you've heard of him. What he did in his books was he took my intellectual doubts seriously and he respected them and he genuinely helped them. He also pointed me to the reformed tradition. Now, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, Hope Church stands in the Reformed tradition. And that is not an accident. That is not an accident. I found the Reformed tradition 
a rigorous, I found in it a rigorous respect for the Christian intellect. And this is a good, good thing. This is a very good thing. We are called to love God with all of our intellect, with all of our mind. But have you ever sat through an interview for a job and they ask you, what is your greatest strength? And then right on the heels of that question, they ask you, okay, how is that strength your greatest weakness? This can happen in our tradition too. And this can happen in our church at Hope. Because we so value the life of the mind, we can easily ignore our emotions and our body. And this way, you know, our strength becomes a weakness. John Frame is a contemporary Reformed theologian. And he has noticed this as well about his own tradition. He wrote an essay on emotions, which is kind of hilarious because that's what we reformed folks do. We write essays. <laughs> but he wrote an essay, and this is an important essay to me. Uh, and it informs actually a lot of what we're going to be talking about this morning. He asks, why do we downplay the emotions in the reformed tradition? And he gives three reasons. He offers three reasons. And kind of, uh, I'd like to lump them into these three categories. The first is Greek history. So we tend to have more in common, unfortunately, with Plato and the Greeks than we do with Jesus and the Gospels. Plato and the rest of Greek thought elevated pure rational thinking and therefore was suspicious of the emotions. Want to live the best life? Think, 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 think well and think often. And more importantly, don't trust the emotions. The second is Gnostic history. Now, maybe you've heard this word, maybe you haven't. Gnosticism. Gnosticism is an ancient approach to life that never goes away. It's just always been with us. It's like a kind of seasonal cold flu, a cold virus that changes and adapts with each uh, season and in time, but it's always with us. It always is around. And try as we might to wash our hands of it, and uh, we seem to catch it every single year. And sadly and tragically, we seem to pass it on every single year. And even more sadly, we, t- we seem to pass this ancient approach to life on in the church. So what is it? The big idea of Gnosticism is that the body is icky. Yeah, you heard me. The body is icky, you know, with all of its snot and with all of its blood and with all of its guts and with all of its confusing emotions. It's just icky. It's just ugh. And the created world that we live in is also just ick. It's ah, it's gross. It's terrible. And so it's our goal in life to uh, kind of get out of our nasty bodies and to get out of this nasty world. And to join with God in pure spirit. As pure spirits. If we could just unzip these earth suits. Float on up to God. All of our problems will be solved. Does that sound familiar? Yes. It sounds like most churches these days. And sadly most funerals these days as well. The problem is it isn't biblical. 
It isn't biblical. The Apostles' Creed says we believe in what? The resurrection of the what? The body. It's not biblical. It's just not biblical. You should know by now, if you've been tracking with us the past few months, that God made the world. And guess what? He likes it. He likes it a lot. He doesn't think it's icky. Even if it's, even though it's fall, even though it's the avenue in which fallen, uh, our sin plays out, he still stands to redeem it and to cleanse it. And then our bodies, he loves our bodies. He made our bodies. He made the human body with blood, with guts, with emotions, with, uh, with all kinds of things. And he, guess what? He loves it. He loves it. It's his idea. It's his creation. And he redeems the human body too. Jesus, our Savior, gladly took on human flesh. He wasn't like, Ugh. no, he gladly took on human flesh. And he will have a body forever. That is orthodoxy. He will have a body forever. But despite all this evidence, Christians choose the Gnostic story. It's that powerful. So Greek history, Gnostic history. And then the third is church history. Okay, so the final reason we give emotions the backseat is our own church history. So uh, Frame reminds us that the Protestant Reformation, which we think of as happening in 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses or arguments on the church wall. He reminds us that the Reformation itself was a scholarly revolution, his phrase. The reformers debated, they wrote papers, they wrote books, and they printed these papers off. And then even fast forward more recently to our more recent history, um, our wing of the church fought hard against the rising tide of anti-intellectualism in the American church in the 19th or in the 20th century. We started seeing this happen and we fought hard. And so Presbyterian heroes are smart people who wrote smart books. Are you tracking with me? Okay. Add all this up. Greek history, which sadly infiltrates us. Gnostic history, which infiltrates us. Our own church history. And what you get is what he calls the primacy of the intellect. We assume, incorrectly, a primacy of the intellect. Sure, our bodies and our emotions matter. But they're junior varsity. And they're distrustful. They're the caboose on the train. And the engine is our intellect. And so the temptation, because of our history, is to have an intellectual relationship with the idea of Jesus. Can I say that again? And can I get an amen? An intellectual relationship with the idea of Jesus. Is your life a mess out there? You need to think this Okay, so that approach has a half-truth in it. Thinking right thoughts is vitally important. But if that's all we do, it leaves us seriously immature. Pastor and author Pete Scazzaro has done an amazing service to the church by convincing so many of us the importance of emotional maturity. And I was so helped by the spiritual formation practices in the past three weeks. Because, as Cazero says, you can't be spiritually mature 
if you are not emotionally mature. And we could spend hours surveying the Bible, uh, looking at the importance of the emotions in the life of God's people. Uh, We could look at the Psalms in the Old Testament alone, uh, which has been called a mini Bible. We could look at the emotional life of Jesus. But this morning I want to focus on a passage from Paul's letter to his first letter to the Thessalonians. Because in this passage, we are given a model of Christian maturity. In fact, the whole reason Paul is writing in this section to the Thessalonians is actually for the church to imitate him. That may sound like weirdly prideful, but if you read Paul, you know he's not a proud dude. In fact, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. So he's not saying I'm perfect, but he is saying heroes and models are important. And he is modeling for them maturity. He is a mentor. And we all need mentors in our life. We don't, you know, Jesus is our perfect mentor. He's perfect. He's sinless. But there are people in our life that we need to look to to see maturity modeled. And that's what Paul the Apostle is doing in this letter. And uh, he wants us to model him or imitate him as he imitates the Lord. And so what we find in this chapter, chapter 2, um, is not so much a defense of himself so much as an offering of, hey, this is who we are as apostles, and you should, uh, you should see us as a model. And so we see a picture of maturity. And uh, this picture of maturity is profound to me. And I want it to be profound to you. In fact, I would encourage you to really think about this chapter uh, well after this sermon, and to read it, and to think on it, and to meditate on it, and to pray it. To just say it even out loud, uh, this passage, and see um, how God would use it in your life. And I want to just read it with you, uh, not the entire chapter, but a large portion of it together. And as I read it, I want you to notice that the, the, the picture of maturity that Paul gives us is one that respects the mind and the heart. Let me say that again. The picture of maturity that we get here in this passage is one that deeply respects the mind and the heart. Just as I read, pay attention to both and how they interplay and how they interact and how they're actually married together in this passage. Starting in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of such conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, or we were like infants among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, We were ready to share with you, not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. 
because you had become very dear to us. For remember, brothers and sisters, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not burden any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as that of what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you. Right away, if you were paying attention as I was reading, whatever divide or primacy of the intellect over the emotions, or whether we do it the other way around, the primacy of the emotions over the intellect, that is totally absent from this passage. We can't read that passage with this hierarchy at all. They were both interacting and, and seamlessly informing and leaning on each other in such profound, beautiful uh, ways that we should indeed uh, emulate. And so I want you to notice first in this passage a commitment to right thinking. So I'm not going to totally throw this out, uh, but we're not going to spend much time here either. Or this right thinking has been called orthodoxy. So verse 8 says it well. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves. So the gospel of God is a message uh, with very specific truths about a person. It's good news about a person. And if you back up to chapter 1, verse 10, you'll see some of the main characteristics of this message. So in verse 10, And wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So in this we see the resurrection of Jesus, the return of Jesus. We see the rescue of sinners. And then if you look up to verse 9 before verse 10, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So there is a sort of reception that is part of the gospel message, and there is a turning or a repentance that comes from the gospel message. And all of this, as we saw in chapter 2, uh, must be presented with what? Verse 3, without error. This must be presented without impurity. Verse 3, without deception. Again, verse 3, without flattery. Verse 5, without greed, without self-glory. Again, verse 5. And all this points to the importance of thinking correct thoughts about Jesus and responding, therefore, correctly about those correct thoughts. Orthodoxy, so important. The word flattery in verse 3 is actually helpful. It says, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt uh, to deceive. And then in verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery. Flattery. Uh, this means to change the truth, quote, according to what people want to hear, end quote. Flattery is when we change the truth according to what we think people want to hear. This is when your buddy 
tries out for American Idol uh, because nobody told him that he is a terrible singer and he sings off key. What? You flattered him his whole life. This is when, um, you know, I'm about to walk out the door with toilet paper on my shoe and I say, do I look okay? And my kids say, yeah, you look great. Flattery. Again, you're not telling the truth. <laughs> you're flattering. You're saying what you think somebody wants to hear, uh, which, uh, which gets us into all kinds of trouble. But Paul says he does not change the message of Jesus, the message of God, to suit people's preferences. Paul goes uh, on to say in, chapter, in verse 13 that he is so, 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 so glad that the Thessalonian church did what? They accepted God's what? God's word from God as if it were from God and not a word from man. All to say, I don't want you to think that hope is going to soft pedal the truth moving forward. Uh, may it never be. And, and besides, how could we? A key part of growth is recognizing uh, and replacing lies that we're living into and living out of with God's truth, with God's truth. And the only way we do this is by exercising our minds, our reason, our rationality, by exercising good critical thinking and reading good hermeneutics, which means the interpretation of, of, of text. So we take our, our best intellectual resources that we can to an ancient text. We do our best to understand its context, to understand what it means. We use our minds and what goes on in our minds to apply the text. All of this is in keeping with what Paul says maturity is about. But notice that Paul also gives as much attention to right feeling as he does right thinking. This is more of a show than a tell, uh, but it's there. This passage is drenched with emotions and with motives, the internal stuff down in here, <laughs> okay? So first, the emotions. Look again at verse 8. So verse 8 is this beautiful summary, I think, of uh, this whole chapter. Verse 8 is beautiful. It just says, I was affectionately, we were affectionately desirous, so that's some strong emotional language by itself, of you. It wasn't just affection. It wasn't just desire. Affectionately desirous of you. Uh, and we were ready, and this word here actually is delighted. NIV pulls this out. Um, the word here is delighted. Ready just sounds like, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready to go to school. It's like, man, whatever. This is like, I delighted. I'm ready. I'm eager. Okay, I'm eager. I'm delighted to do what? To share not only, Paul says. Now, this phrase, not only. This could be, we could be not only Presbyterian church because we talk about this two by two grid all the time. We want to be a not only church. We want to affirm the truth of God, not only, but we also want to, in addition to that, affirm um, emotional maturity, which is what we're talking about uh, this morning. So not only do we want to share the gospel with you, but we also want to share with you our very lives. Why? He goes on, verse 8, because you had become very dear. The word here is beloved. This is emotional language. Like they are beloved. You don't just tell someone they're beloved uh, from the brain. You, you, you have feelings, strong feelings for one another. And Paul says so. And did you notice the family imagery in this passage? 
It's amazing. Paul compares his apostolic ministry um, to that of a nursing mother in verse 10, who is tender, who is careful, who is emotionally connected and aware. Paul also compares his apostolic ministry to a connected, healthy father in verse 11, who encourages, comforts, and urges. And then there's the motives. So first the emotions, now the motives. In verse 3, he makes sure that we all know that what he does springs from some kind of depth. Springs from, look look at that in verse 3. Our appeal does not spring from, spring from, okay? Where does his appeal spring from? Well, the motives are important. In verse 4 and in verse 6, he talks about this isn't coming from any desire to deceive or any impurity or this sort of people-pleasing mentality. Verse 6, he talks about the same. We don't seek glory from people, uh, whether from you or for others. Um, and, and he goes on and he talks about the motives at work in his heart. And then in verse 8, he uses a Greek word that means to feel oneself drawn to something with strong intensification of Feeling Okay, so Paul is clearly showing to us that maturity in imitation of, of apostles in this case, maturity, imitation of maturity involves the emotional life as well as the mental life. Paul is saying, imitate my heart too. Emotions matter. I want to do a quick experiment and inspired by uh, John Frame, I'm going to read a passage of Scripture to you, but I'm going to read it in monotone. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. John Frame says that what I did, quote, is a distortion of the text as much as a theological error would be. So this is an invitation. You are invited to bring your emotions to God. The Psalms demand it. Like our thoughts, not all of our emotions are healthy. (laughs) Okay? Maybe this should go without saying. Maybe I think it goes without saying, but it should be said. Not, Not all of our emotions are healthy. The fall into sin has impacted all of life, which includes our emotions as much as our thinking and our bodies. But how will God bring to health our emotional life if we just ignore our emotions altogether? See, this passage is a big green light from God himself to bring all of your emotions into your walk with Jesus and your relationships with others. It might be helpful even to ask uh, from time to time in your discipleship, 
Lord, how am I feeling right now? Help me discern how I am feeling right now. That can be a very critical piece of your walk with the Lord. As he's inviting you into his presence to be healed, to be redeemed, to be changed, to be transformed, to be filled so that you can love others. You need to ask, not just what am I thinking that's off base, but what am I feeling right now? And what is that saying about my life? What is that saying about um, about what I'm reading in scripture and so on? This is an important key element of what it means to be whole before the Lord. God wants all of you in his presence. And I think secondly, it's an invitation to refine your emotions with God. Some of us are afraid of our emotions because they've gotten us in trouble. And that's understandable. That's why I just frankly ignore all my emotions. (laughs) I don't want to get in trouble. Um, But remember, the Bible doesn't have a hierarchy Uh, We don't put emotions above thought. We don't put thought above emotions. God comes at both. Uh, They're both important. They both inform and lean on one another. That's the image we see in Scripture. Uh, We don't put one above the other. And just like we, uh, these things, because they must interact. And so what we do is we interrogate our emotions with truth and with our thoughts. We refine them. Uh, We ask God to refine and to align our emotional life to match his. So sometimes God invites us to express things that we don't naturally feel. Um, Why? Why? Why would God do that? And where does God do that? Well, the Psalms do it all the time. God gave us the Psalms uh, because uh, he wants to shape Not just our thinking, but our feeling. I mean, you could argue that the Psalms themselves really don't teach much new about God or the world. They really reiterate what is taught in other parts of Scripture in a way that engages your emotions on a higher level. Same is true of the book of Revelation. Uh, Scholars of Revelation have all said, you know... It's amazing. There's not really anything new being taught about Jesus or about the work that he did um, or about theology. Uh, what's, being, what, what's being presented in Revelation is an, is an amazing image, uh, imagistic sort of uh, uh, image that is meant to uh, shape you with your imagination and with your body and, uh, and with your thinking, yes, but it's a little bit more of an of a experience, really, uh, reading and, and hearing um, and meditating on the book of Revelation. Well, the same is true of the Psalms. God invites us to express things that we don't naturally feel so that we will one day feel them. <laughs> Um, that's the purpose of the Psalms. I don't actually feel uh, most of the Psalms. I don't, just confession. But as I sing and pray these Psalms, God is going to slowly align my heart with his. As I sing and pray these Psalms with others, with other people, the body of Christ, not just locally, but especially globally, as we sing these songs together, my emotions are going to start to align slowly with how God would have me. What this means for our church is that we want to cultivate a space that invites and pursues emotional expression and emotional 
health. Uh, We are going to try and maybe blaze a trail here. uh, Because in 10 years, we will not apologize for our intellectual rigor. And maybe what we talked about the past few weeks about vocation is just confirmation of that. We will not apologize for our emotional rigor. I'm sorry, intellectual rigor. (laughs) But we will be pursuing emotional health with every other, with every bit as much of our energies. We will be valuing emotional expression in worship and in all of life and in our life of formation before God. We want visitors to come to our church and say, this church is warm and committed to truth. This church is warm and committed to truth. We want to embrace what one Reformed theologian has called intellectual, or I'm sorry, intelligent mysticism. This was, this was a phrase from John Murray, of all people, if you know who that is. Intelligent mysticism. Pastor Tim Keller says this quote means an encounter with God that involves not only the affections of the heart, but also the convictions of the mind. The truth of God's revelation goes down deep and ought to stir our emotions and refine our emotions both. After all, our Savior, who was God in flesh, the only perfect human to walk this earth, his creation, was walking truth. The Word made flesh. Yet Jesus, walking truth, wept. Deeply, the gospels say his insides, his bowels turned with compassion quite often. He was not data from Star Trek, computing and dispensing truth. This is no no slight against data. I know there's data lovers out there. He was a man of sorrows and yet a man of deep joy. You don't get accused of being a drunkard and a glutton if, if you are a killjoy. And yet we see his sorrow too. Jesus has experienced the extremities of life and has expressed perfectly the extremities of emotions without sin. And this means your sinful emotions, because you're united to the sinless Jesus, cannot damn you. You are saved by his grace. But it also means Jesus can handle your emotional life. And more than that, he wants you to bring all of you into his presence so that he can hear you and heal you. More on this next week. But for now, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this invitation. This invitation from the Apostle Paul himself to bring our emotions into our ministry, to bring our emotions into our life together into our life with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.